episode 33 22 of the survival podcast today i think that you'll enjoy this one we're going to talk about decentralization and the decentralization of well everything but we're actually going to zero in on seven specific areas of decentralization Uh, those seven areas are education money food production communications media governance and energy We've already had somebody in the comments before we even started, probably a half hour before we started, saying it'll never happen in our lifetime. If that's you, you probably don't want to listen to that because we're going to talk about solutions. We're going to talk about things that are coming. And I was very clear when I did the write-up for today's show uh, and sent out the invites and what have you. There's a lot of gradually before the suddenly in a lot of this. Now, some of this stuff will come to fruition really quick. And in our society, five years is really quick. Some of this will not come to fruition fully in my lifetime. I'm 50 years old. If I make 40 years, it's older than average. Um, I I said this morning when I put this out on social media, I may be alive when this stuff is fully realized, but I'll probably be too old to give a shit, you know, and that's probably the case. We're living through the end of an empire, and we've talked about that before, and we specifically talked about at the end of the American empire, but America is just... Well, it's the symbolic tip of the spear in this empire. This empire is far more broad than just the United States of America. It is a conglomerate of people that have massive amounts of money and power and control distribution systems, control what governments do versus actually being in government, etc. But it's falling apart. And no matter how hard they try to hold on to it, there are certain moments in history where you reach a tipping point and a thing has come and no matter what you do to try to prevent that thing from coming, it's going to come. You can go back in history and you can look at things where this has happened before. Sometimes it's something that's so momentous. It just changes government. It changes everything. Sometimes it's, it's just in one small group of people. And let's say a group of people without a tremendous amount of power just don't want it. So they're going to fight it. Here's an example. Back in the uh, 15th century, or 16th century, I'm sorry, 16th century, 1500s, we had some of the first mill-powered sawmill, water-powered sawmills created. And there were people that had a really shitty job. They were sawmen. They took a giant two-man rip saw, and they had a pit. And one guy got down in the pit, and one guy stood up over the pit, and they sawed boards out of logs, the way we do with a sawmill today. Now, as you might imagine, again, that job sucked, and it sucked to be the dude in the pit, right? It was worse to be the dude in the pit than the dude above the pit looking down on it. So they took turns. They took turns. So, like, they cut one, and then a dude would get on top, and they would do it. And this actually was a way to make a living. So when the sawmill came, all the sawmen went on strike, which just accelerated the deployment and development of sawmills. Well, you're going to go on strike, then we need to implement this technology faster. There were farmers who refused to plant their fields. Well, not really farmers. There were farm laborers that refused to work 
when some of the first horse-drawn combines were created. And these were things that were like, this is the time that this thing will come. And because it works so good, you might slow it down or impair it a little bit, but you're not going to stop it. Well, we have things like that branching out everywhere. And we have an empire that has attempted to control and prevent losing control for well over 100 years now as this technology has gone and just exploded. And they've been really good at co-opting the technology, taking credit for technology, using the technology themselves. But they've still been dramatically successful at controlling things. Education is one of the things we'll talk about today. So I've said this before, but in your schools now, sure, you have computers and screens instead of overhead projectors and little gels. Remember those, right? The little like slides, but they weren't slides. They were like gels that you set on there. Like that, that's changed. They've, they've adapted the technology. They took wood shop and metal shop out of the schools. But the school works the same way. All the kids sit in a line. They're divided by grades. They're sent from one place to another with a bell for a Pavlovian response, which was designed to condition people to do what? To be obedient workers in this system. And the system has completely altered on the outside, but the preparatory system has remained the same. And we just funnel more people into higher education now, which is a giant money grab. And they mortgage their life force. They mortgage their, their, their dash to gain that education, which is largely like more than 50% of what people learn in college is completely useless to them in whatever career path they'll eventually take, even if they stay in their degree of their field of study. It is time for this to change, and it's beginning to change. And because it's so huge, because it's so broad, because it is so centralized, it will take time. But it is going to happen, and you can either grab onto it and help it happen, or you can pretend it's not happening, or you can be a surrender monkey like the person that made the initial comment. It'll never happen. Okay, well, that's fine. See, what's going to happen is going to happen with you or without you. And we are going into a bifurcation of society right now. We have a society right now where... Some members of this society have decided that they're going to embrace centralization and be part of defending it. And we have a whole group of people who have decided I ain't doing it and I will do whatever it takes to be outside of this, this, this monstrosity, this, this absolutely kind of, you know, dystopian future. I'm not going to participate. And you're going to have both of these groups around for quite a long time, for quite a long time. With that, let's go ahead and uh, remind you of our two sponsors of the day before we get into uh, the meat and potatoes, say, of today's show. So sponsor day number one today is Butcher Box. How would you like a giant box of grass-fed beef, pastured pork, pastured poultry, wild-caught seafood shipped straight to your door every month? Super high quality, always arrives in great condition. If anything does go wrong, because, you know, ButcherBox doesn't control UPS or FedEx or whomever that happens to be the carrier that brings it to you, they will always make it right. They have always taken care of things when there's been a problem. They've just been a great sponsor for like five years now. Check them out. Know this. I like the product that they sell so much. I do not take money from ButcherBox. They actually pay me in meat. So when you get your ButcherBox, you're getting the same meat that I am paid for the sponsorship uh, spot with. Uh, also, Ridge Wallet. Ridge Wallet's been around with us for about five years now. It's forever and a day in the world of podcasting. They've gone from just having a really cool wallet and a few other things to being a full-scale EDC company with some of the coolest EDC stuff that there is. Definitely stuff that you want to check out. You can learn more at Ridge.com. And Ridge Wallet and ButcherBox both do discounts for members of the MSB. All right, let's get into this, right? Again, I want to start out from the standpoint of 
there's, in my opinion, seven major areas that are centralized and controlled and overseen by government. And society has been convinced across our lifetimes, mainly due to the combination of them and how they're applied, that we need government for this, that we need the state for this. This can't be possibly handled without the government intervening, even if some of the solutions are delivered uh, by the free market, like, let's say, in the energy sector. We still need the government to oversee the whole thing, because without government, it would never work. And in each of these areas, what we've seen is a massive failure. You can't tell me the education system is super high quality. You can't. I'm sorry if you do, I won't believe you. And I will literally write you off as not being worthy of having a discussion with if you think we have a top-notch educational system in the United States today. Because you are a victim of the same system you're defending, and that's why you believe it. There's no way our education system, where we spend more per student than most nations, is one of the top education systems in the world, for sure. And the other ones aren't that great either. It's just about test scores. That does not make an education system valid, as this one-size-fits-all approach won't apply to everybody that graduates. Education needs to be tailored to the student, the student's desires, the student's goals. Right. So that doesn't work. And it just keeps going. Right. The money, the monetary system is a disaster. If you're going to tell me that the economic system of the world today, fractional reserve banking, is a good monetary system that serves humanity. I'm not having a debate with you. I'm not. I'm not. Now, I'm not going to listen to you one minute bitch how expensive your, your living is and then defend the monetary system that created that problem for you in the first place. I, I don't have time for it. Food production. We have people poisoning themselves with food today, right? Communications. We have people being snooped on by their own governments constantly. And we always find out that whatever initially comes out about it was worse. Communications, uh, uh, media, government itself. It's all a disaster. And it's energy. Energy is probably the one that works the best because it has to. Energy, in a way, is a lot like military, Right. States will always manage their military to be at least somewhat functional because to not do so invites invasion. And if you don't have energy, you're in a real pickle when it comes to maintaining control of a nation. So those two, they'll do a little bit better. They're still disasters. They're still absolute disasters. And innovation is constantly hindered and held back. So that, so we have to come from a, a, a premise today that there are problems in each one of these major sectors and that the problems that the government claims to want to solve, they're impeding, and that the main problem in these systems is the intervention of government in the first place. And then we have to say, well, then how do you solve the problem? And as I hope you'll realize today by the time we're done, all the solutions invoke some level, maybe not 100 percent, but some level of decentralization. So let's start off with education and the primary ways that we can decentralize education. One is what's known as peer to peer learning. Peer to peer learning is kind of sort of what we're doing right now. I'm teaching your learning. We do have some feedback mechanism in place. But peer to peer learning is really just I know a thing. You want to know a thing and I teach you that can be in person. That can be through correspondence. That can be through uh, something like we're doing right now, but it's just two people end to end discussing things and going through things together. Right. That's a huge piece of learning. I'm going to talk about platforms like OutSchool and Acellus and Udemy, et cetera. 
And so those are more of like what we're doing here, where it's like a broadcast to a, a class of what have you. But they are actually, right, they are actually, hold on a second here. This is where you get people that are just like, Jeffrey is asking me, why does Katie have to go somewhere else? But because she doesn't believe in decentralization, it's going to happen a lifetime. She's not welcome. See, this is where people like you got to get the wad out of your ass, Jeffrey, just to be blunt and honest. This is a person that shows up, says this will never happen. Then I can't help you. And if you don't like it, Jeffrey, you're welcome to leave, too. No one's unwelcome, but you are welcome to leave as well as welcome to stay. And I'll just simply tell people sometimes if this is your attitude coming into this, you're not going to like what you're going to hear. And when somebody shows up and they're the very first comment and you haven't even started yet and they start off with Eeyore bullshit, I'm tired. All right. I've been doing this for 15 fucking years, Jeffrey, 15 fucking years of listening to people that claim to want solutions. Bitch. Whenever we talk about solutions that people that act like Eeyore from fucking Winnie the Pooh and I will run my podcast the way I want. And you're welcome to stay and you're welcome to carry your ass out the fucking door. And you're probably a nice guy and you've probably been listening a long time. And hopefully you've come to expect a response like that from me. If you haven't and it bit your nose the wrong way, bye-bye. All right. When we look at things like OutSchool, Excel, Udemy, they are standalone processes where somebody can go in and take a recorded course or be part of a live interaction. But there are also places where you can reach out for direct peer-to-peer learning. Okay? Peer-to-peer learning. And what I mean by that is, for instance, my grandson was having some trouble with math and my wife was trying to teach him with math. And Jeffrey, let it go, dude. OK, you got an answer. You're lucky you got an answer. Anyway, um, she was having trouble. And the way he had to do the math, my wife was unable to help him. I didn't have the time to help him. We went out. Right. We went out and we found a tutor throughout school for one-to-one peer-to-peer learning. We hired that tutor for five sessions. We got him caught up. And then when he was able to go back to his regular coursework, we were done. That's a peer-to-peer learning example. And peer-to-peer learning is now more scalable, more scalable than it's ever been because we have tools to do it with. Online platforms like OutSchool, Udemy, et cetera, and then Homeschool platforms that are more organized, like Excellus. This is liberating people into homeschool. Honest to God, I don't know that my wife would have the mental bandwidth at our age to homeschool our two grandchildren every day without a platform like Excellus to work with. It's been fantastic. Uh, we spend, I think, about 80 bucks a month per kid. We turn it off in the summer. They move at their own pace. We We, we supplement them with outside learning and with tutoring when necessary, and it makes everything easy. It doesn't mean that all the work's easy for the kids. It works easy for us. We get a great way to oversee it. We end up with a transcript. They do a lot of work for us in it. And so this is completely decentralizing education because my kids can learn their program. Your kids can learn their program, and we can tailor things. There's certain core subjects that they take, but there's also a lot of flexibility, especially as they get older. And Excellus just happens to be the one I picked. There's multiple platforms like this. There's the Ron Paul curriculum, for instance, and there's other platforms. This was just the one that worked for us. So education is being completely decentralized. Uh, Open educational resources are a huge part of this. There's a tremendous amount, right? There is a tremendous amount 
Jeffrey, I think they think not so much you were whining, but your butt hurt over nothing. Anyway, uh, there's a tremendous amount of material out there that used to be very expensive to get your hands on that's now in a PDF, a textbook's in a PDF. Or there are all types of information that are immediately accessible that used to be kind of in a closed system that you couldn't get access to. Meaning that a person that wants to learn something today can use these open educational resources and create their own coursework to learn whatever they want to learn. On top of it, now we have AI, which I know many of you are afraid of. It's all the Terminator and the Matrix and it's going to kill us all. But AI is a tool. And AI can be an incredibly useful tool for learning. Because you can take something and say, explain this to me, and then it'll give you this high-level explanation of it. And you can say, I don't understand this part right here. Explain this to me like I'm in 10th grade. And if you still don't get it, you can say, explain it to me like I'm a fifth grader, even if you're a 25-year-old man. And it will keep working. It will keep it will keep explaining it to you. And you can keep asking for refinement until you get it. And then once you kind of get the base level explained at the, the dum-dum level, you can start asking it to actually increase the complexity of the explanation until you fully grasp it. You could even then say, hey, I want to learn more about this from a practical hands-on thing, right? A practical hands-on thing. And because I want to learn from a practical hands-on thing, give me five projects I could do. And don't explain them all right away. Just give me like bullet points, five projects. Oh, number four, I like that one. Lay out how I would conduct this project and explain to me how it would help me better understand the concept. And it'll do it in seconds. It'll do it in seconds. When you have a kid, instead of trying to hide AI and AI tools from your kids, when you have a kid that's really not understanding something, and maybe you don't have time to set up a tutor, sit down with something like ChatGPT and keep working with that kid until the kid understands it. You, it'll solve a math problem and show you how to work the problem out, and we're all worried the kid's going to copy it. I'm worried the kid can look at it and understand it. And the fact that I can, it will never get tired, it will never get frustrated, it will never write off a learner. It just does what you ask it to do. So if you need to ask it to re-explain it 20 different ways before you find the way the student understands it, it doesn't care. It doesn't get tired. It will do it. It is, might be the greatest decentralization tool for education that's ever been created. And now you're going to say, oh, centralize it, and you're going to be dependent on it. That's why you need to learn about it, because we, have, we already have open source versions of everything. We already have stuff that if you'll invest the time and the money, you can run locally yourself on your own devices and it's just going to keep coming and you can pretend it's not and you can hide your head and if i seem a little bit um adversarial today let me just say i knew this would happen before it did and that's why i'm in the mindset I, again i just want to explain i've been doing this for 15 years 15 years and i can tell you that the most popular shows i have are the ones that are the least focused on solutions which is exactly the opposite of what i'm trying to do right it's exactly the opposite but i'll tell you why when I give you a problem, it takes you no energy to be outraged, upset, incensed, and get the endorphin hit from it. Zero. If we talk about the fact that your, your, your favorite politician's in deep shit right now, you can be incensed by it, but you don't have to do anything. If we talk about the shit that's being done to our children in the name of gay pride, which is just grooming by pedophiles, it takes no energy to be outraged by it. You don't have to do anything. I'm outraged by it. I'm sitting here being outraged by it right now. I could stop talking. I could sit back in this chair, veg out, look at the ceiling, and I can be pissed off and outraged by it. And I actually will get a level of an emotional endorphin hit. There actually is a piece of being outraged that feels good. But the minute you're told, here's the solution to what you're outraged by, it requires you to fucking do something. 
So I can sit around bitching about pedophiles that are managing our education system, and they are. I can sit around and bitch about drag cream story hour, but instead I put up the money and the time and created the, the situation so that my wife and I could re- remove our grandchildren from that because our kids are out killing themselves with their jobs every day and can't figure out how to do it without our help. One requires action, and that's where people push back because the minute it requires action, you have to admit that at least part of your problems are your own. Well, this is a solution show today. So the reason that I am a little adversarial with it is because I knew I would get this pushback. And there are times when even I, that do the best I can to be accommodating to people, et cetera, I'm just done. I'm done with your whining. I'm done with your bitching. And if I've misunderstood your whining or bitching in a text comment in a live feed, I'm sorry. But the original one, I know exactly where that was coming from. And I knew it was coming from there when I read it. So I said what I said. And if you don't like it, back to don't care. Let's move on. Money. Uh, AI, I want to, again, AI for education. One more thing about um, education is homeschool communities. All these groups of people working together. And all of the crap that you see online, we all get together and hire a teacher and then she can run a school. Okay, it's all bullshit. I've never seen anybody actually do it. I've never seen anybody actually, and I wouldn't do it. And I wouldn't do it because all you're going to do is recreate the exact system you withdrew them from, except you get to be dictator over what is and isn't taught. That's all you get out of that. You get somebody classically trained in the classical system that's a dinosaur and dying, and you perpetuate it on a microcosm. It might be decentralized, but it's not successful. But homeschool co-ops, homeschool groups that basically everybody does their homeschooling to get independently, but they get together and they go to the zoo together and they have like that stuff works. That stuff works. And I've seen a lot of examples of it working. I've seen a lot of examples of people getting together and doing group teaching maybe one day a week or, you know, one day every other week or a couple days a month or something like that. And so there's a tremendous movement in that direction. And you'll find from homeschool families that they all want to help each other. Like you don't have to force that at all. It's just a natural thing. And you'll find that most homeschoolers, if someone's considering it, and hasn't made the leap yet, they're like, what can we do to help you get to where you want to be? And that's because this is an idea that is not just its time has come, it's been come, and it's just growing every day. Moving on, money. So obviously Bitcoin is decentralized money. I'm not going to make this a Bitcoin episode. If somebody starts whining about Bitcoin, you don't want to buy Bitcoin, don't buy Bitcoin. I don't give a shit. Okay? The longer you wait, the more I get to buy while the price is depressed. That's fine. But... If you have a monetary system where your problem is it's inflated at will and inflation is a hidden tax and a theft of your wealth. And that system is controlled by a group of elite people that can take money from you by printing more anytime they want. That can dole out zero interest to almost zero interest loans to all the banks all the time where they can resuscitate the money back into the government's debt and skim a few points off of it infinitely. If you have a system where one person can say this is what we're going to do and all of a sudden there's an extra trillion dollars printed. If you have a system like that, what's your solution? Because whatever your shit coin is, if you're into that, it's not a solution. And your gold and silver, while great monetary instruments, are not a solution to the problem in the monetary system. Until I can exchange value with somebody in Japan or Australia or Russia or South America or, you know, wherever – 
from here in seconds for almost no cost. Until I can do that, your monetary system is insufficient to disrupt the current monetary system that's used to control you. You have to have a system with a fixed cap on quantity that no one can change. You have to have a system that is independent of the state. And no matter how much the state hates it, they just have to learn to live with it. That's Bitcoin. That's all I'll say on that. Peer-to-peer lending. Peer-to-peer lending, there's a lot of crap from the shitcoin universe that has kind of come into this. But there's also straight up, you know, U.S. dollar lending. But we are getting to a point, very, very much so, where a person that wants to do a thing, can make a case for a thing and raise funding outside of the SEC's bullshit where they say you can't do it because you're fleecing investors or whatever because it's just a loan. It's not stock ownership. So it's not investment. It's a loan. And if you default, then they can come after you for your assets, that type of thing. So peer-to-peer lending is a huge pot, part of dis, uh, 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 decentralizing the monetary system because right now when you need money, where do you go? To the banks. Well, what centralizes the money? The banks. Who controls the money? The Federal Reserve. What is the Federal Reserve? It's just the member banks. It's just the biggest banks in the world. That's all that it is. So lending is a big part of how the financial system is centralized. A huge part of it. Um, closed barter trade and sales networks. Now, a lot of this stuff has interconnections. So you're like, how do you have a closed barter trade network? So barter, when I say barter and trade, I mean that it might be me giving you a product for a product, but it might be me buying a product. The important thing is that the network itself is closed, meaning it's an invitation-only network. You can't just show up and be part of it unless we let you in. And if it's if there was one of those, it's not decentralized. It's just a thing. But we're having these things being built and developed everywhere. Everywhere people get together in sub-communities, and they start doing business with each other. Or for right now, for instance, we have a group of people in the, telecom- in the uh, TSP community that are doing fund- fundraising for Jenny Hill. I'll make sure I add uh, the link for that in the show notes today because she's going through some really hard stuff. Well, this is, this is a close. I mean, yes, anybody can do it, but you have to know it's there. You have to want to do it. And you have to care. So on some levels, it is somewhat close because there's only certain people that are going to do it, and they don't get anything directly back in return for it. It's not a Kickstarter. It's, hey, I know this person needs help. I'm going to reach out and help them. How would that happen with a centralized system? And the answer is it won't. Um, so closed bar and trade networks, things like fundraising for individual causes or people, that is all decentralizing a monopoly that these people have had on things, saying, well, you need the government to come in there and fix that for you. No, thanks. We'll do it ourselves. Much faster, much quicker, and we'll put almost all the money directly to work on the cause. Right now, we have a ton of situations where the amount of government money the government spends on a thing, no matter how poorly the, the result is, you're losing 30 to 50 percent of the money before it gets to the street, so to say. So we're circumventing that with direct support of causes that we care about. Value for value protocols and networks. Uh, so when we look at things like podcasting 2.0 and people being able to say, hey, I like that podcast, here's a buck. Or here's 50 cents or here's a nickel and be able to do that instantaneously across that network. That is a massive disruption to a monetary system because it's not so much what it takes away from the monetary system that we have. It's doing something the monetary system we have can't do. Do you understand what I mean? They can't do it. The Visa network, 
the, the, the commercial banking network cannot allow Rachel, who I see here in the, uh, in the comments saying slap that like and please do what Rachel says. They can't allow Rachel to send me a nickel. Not that they wouldn't. I mean, like the way the system works, it doesn't, it won't work. It's like trying to start a fire, you know, with a bunch of rocks and no other material. He's going to set the rocks on fire with a Bic lighter. This, that system doesn't function. We need tinder and kindling that burns. And then we need fuel wood to start a fire. Or we need something that burns. Since rock isn't going to burn, I mean, it'll go molten in the lava if we get enough heat. But it's not going to burn. It's not going to become a campfire. We're not going to cook over it, right? We need a fire. Well, we need a system that makes a fire. Well, their system can't send a nickel across space and time. They can't do it. It costs more than a nickel to send the nickel. And they certainly can't do it between here and Tokyo in a fraction of, of time, you know, a two or three second transactional time. They can't. And so the fact that we can do a thing they can't do, we haven't even begun to crack the egg and look inside it and see what that can become. And they are attacking it. For those who don't know, Noster uses a value for value protocol called Zaps, where I can post something. So like, that made me laugh today, Jack. Here's 50 sats, like two cents or whatever it is. Okay, well, again, we're back to something they can't do. But the way we've been doing that, if we're iPhone users on iOS, is we have been using an app called Domus. And Apple just decided yesterday that if I post a meme and you give me a nickel or a penny, even though you don't actually get anything, there's no deliverable, it's an in-app purchase, which is retarded. But they're doing it, and they're going to shut the Domus app down, shove them out of the App Store. We'll get to how that gets circumvented in a bit. But that's, if, if that wasn't a disruption, they would. it's not big enough. It's not important enough unless it is a disruption. That's why they're doing it. That's why they're doing it. Um, another th thing I wanted to say about that, this idea of value for value was foretold in a series of books by an author, kind of a new age author. If it's not your thing. You probably don't want to look him up. There'll be a link in the, in, in the audio notes, though, where you can find his books. His name is James Redfield. His first book was called The Celestine Prophecy. I'll tell you right now, it was the best one. The other three that promised more were mostly reiterations of the first one, a new storyline, same main character. But they were okay. But the first one was incredible at understanding interpersonal dynamics and the way people use control dramas to, to suck energy from each other. And that doesn't have to be met metaphysical. We've all had arguments where you just end up exhausted, right? And there's primary ways that people do this and, and take, take power and energy in an argument or a social situation from each other. But one of the things in the original Nine Insights, which was part of the Celestine Prophecy, which is all fiction, by the way, was I think it was the fourth insight, I could be wrong, where people would begin to exchange money with each other as a form of a tithe in, in response to information that, they, that was useful to them or valuable to them. And what, what he meant is like if I was walking down the street and I saw you and said, I have been trying to find, you know, place XYZ all day long and I can't find it. Then you told me or you said something like, oh, there yeah, the reason you haven't found it is it sucks and you shouldn't go there and it's dangerous there. And here's where you should go instead. Then I might pull out like a dollar and give it to you. Now, in society, the way people handle each other, I don't think it would work. I always had it. I struggled with that one because I'm like, this doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Again, this was I read this in like 93. 
93, 94, somewhere there. Long before we had, you know, the internet really take off. I was, I was using a pager and working for MCI at the time, right? That's how long ago it was. And when I saw Lightning, I went, there it is. Like many future-looking authors, Redfield was able to know the thing that would happen, but not the means by which it would happen. You know, we, I don't remember who it was. It's one of the early sci-fi writers that, that predicted satellites, but said they would be made out of brick or something like that. And really didn't call them, and he really didn't know exactly how they would work. But there'd be these things circling the Earth that would bounce signals around. You know, it might have been Arthur, Arthur C. Clarke. It might have been H.G. Wells. I don't really remember. But that's another example of that. So, uh, and there's a, we're going to hit another one that Redfield hit. And again, the book's called The Celestine Prophecy. I also see an ownership economy emerging. When NFTs first came out and they were selling monkeys and shit, I was like, no, that's not going to work. And I was still willing to entertain the value of shit coins at the time. We're not going to need them to do this. But we're going to have ways that people can buy into revenue streams from companies and be part of that as an owner outside of the stock market, which is also centralized. Well, there's a NASDAQ and I dig in Japan and then there's a Dow Jones and it's not centralized because there's multiple options, but it's all centralized. It's all put through regulatory process that's designed to protect investors and doesn't really protect investors, does it? I mean, people lose money in the stock market all the time. I'm talking about much smaller going concerns. I'm talking about having maybe a, a small shop owner, a lo single location sell 5% interest in his business to hundreds of people in fractional shares, maybe they won't be called shares. But this will be managed and handled through something that if it's not an NFT, will look a lot like an NFT and therefore be transferable from one party to another. I want to sell out my position. I want to buy it. Well, here, we'll trade a token. This will be done with Bitcoin if it ever is effective and works. And it will probably be done through what's called Fediments or something similar to it. And it will be a big part of wresting monetary control away from the powers that be. And it's, it's something that is so logical that it's going to happen. And it could take, like, there's a lot of jujitsu, status jujitsu can be done here, a rewards program that you buy into rather than calling it a share or a stake in the company. But if you think about it, what if you're, you were trying to revitalize local community and you as a citizen of this small town had a fractional component of ownership in 10 merchants in that town. Where are you going to shop? Are you going to shop at the place where you are have some level of ownership stake or some stake in that success? Or are you going to shop at the giant conglomerate down the road? You might go to the giant conglomerate only when you can't get what you need from your own store. If you owned a restaurant and there were two restaurants, one across the street from the other, you would probably tend to go to the one that you own. Now, if you really like Mexican food and you're in the mood for Mexican food and you own a Greek restaurant, you might go to the, the, the Mexican restaurant. But what if you could have a little piece of both of them? And what if there was nothing to get in the way of you doing that? And what if it could even be done anonymously? And what I mean by anonymously is a third party looking into a network can't see it. That's what Fediments do especially with the addition of protocols like Taproot within the Bitcoin ecosystem. Are we there? We're not even close. Will we go there? Yes. Everything necessary to get there is already there. It's a matter of assembling it together and getting people active and to understand it. We already have people doing fundraising with, with apps like Geyser, right? And we have a problem 
with centralized app marketplaces. But there's ways around that. We'll save that for another category. Let's go to food production next, though. Um, urban farming is a huge step to decentralizing the food system. And we do have some impediments to it. But right now, the, the powers that be think it looks good. So they've actually carved out a lot of places to allow it to happen. And this is one of those things where you get a toehold and then you expand it. And then if you get to the point where they don't like it anymore, it's a little bit too late. And there's all types of ways that this can play out, these urban farms. We think of mostly like these things that look like a typical farm, only they're on an acre or a half acre and row cropping and all. There's a lot of these being built, though, with greenhouses. And the greenhouses have a lot of climate control. And the climate control both moderates cold temperatures in winter and hot temperatures in summer. We start combining technologies with it like biochar and aquaculture. And you start to gain a way that you have multiple monetary inputs into that system. And it makes it very, very stable. And it, it plays on the one thing that really scares politicians. Looking stupid. Now, I know you're going to think, wait, they look stupid all the time. I don't mean it that way. Like cackles and, and diapers in the White House, yes, they look stupid all the time. What I mean is when a politician's actions are an embarrassment to them to the point that it's going to cost them votes and it pisses off their electorate, especially if it's if it's competitive at all for them. That's where they don't want to go. That's where they don't want to go. And you can't gin up all this environmental talk and then start going after urban farmers growing lettuce locally and selling it to restaurants and, and retail customers. It's, it's not you can't. It's very difficult. So it's a very defensible position and it's right in the heart of the beast. It's not what I want to do. I want out of the urban areas. But it is a piece of this decentralization. You have to a, a true decentralized world has 100 pieces per niche, let alone macro, right? We're talking about macro categories here when we say things like money or food production. Within, within the food space, a niche like urban farming has got to have a hundred different ways to get it done. Or it's not decentralized. That's what makes it decentralized. It's that each person runs their concern or each group or each entity runs its group of concerns the way that it wants to. And it adapts. And then it's, it's actually a form of like private federalism. Hmm. Maybe that's why they call the Bitcoin system fediments, right? It's a private federalist system in that if I'm looking over here, and it's not even about competition, right? This whole idea of free market competition, good thing. But it's not necessarily has to be competition. If I see something working really well for another group in my space, even if they're not taking business from me because they're only serving a certain area and I'm serving, I'm still going to adopt. I'm going to co-op what they're doing. Permaculture, regen, ag, they, these things have to be decentralized. They don't work in a centralized system. You can't have permaculture farms and be, have a centralized food system. So we cover that a lot. I don't want to go too long today, so I'll just move forward from there. But when we start looking at things like converting cornfields to rotational grazing systems with regenerative agriculture, which is about as decentralized as you can get, because what I end up doing if I set that model up, I eventually, over, let's say, five years of pasture management, put my inputs as close to zero as they can get. So holding that cow on pasture for a longer period of time to get that, that animal to wait to sell it, is not a big deal for me. And now I'm selling a premium product, for, so I'm, I'm getting rid of the CAFO. 
We can do that with pork. We can do it with poultry. And there's so many ways that they're constraining this. But the more of it we have, the harder it becomes to constrain. One of the things that people tend to forget or just don't know, I guess, is that even the state has limitations. It's not all powerful. It's not almighty. It can't do everything. It will run out of resources. And the further you spread out, the harder it is to get their arms around. This is why they cling so much. Let's push everybody into the cities. Let's control the education system. Letting states run their own schools, that's crazy. We need a Department of Education we spend freaking $80 billion or $90 billion a year on. This completely redundant and unnecessary, except if you want control. You want to exert control. USDA, what the hell do we need the USDA for? Every state has its own mechanism in place to make sure people aren't eating poison. What do we need? Because we want control. Well, they want control. Moving on. How about um, CSAs, buyers, clubs, etc.? We can decentralize even pulling food out of the centralized systems. I know people that run businesses right here because we used to have one of them as a customer for our duck eggs. That they so they go out and source as much local food as they can, and they still go into the centralized system. But you have an individual dr- basically driving around in a van every day with different groups of people with different delivery days. And they're getting incredible diversity in their food supply. They're making sure that, like, best case scenario is locally grown, no GMO, et cetera, beyond organic. You know, next best scenario is we know the party that we've imported the food from. Next best scenario is, yes, we went into the centralized system, but we took the best quality we can, and here's your food delivered to your door. And by the way, these people are spending less money than if they went to the grocery store and did it themselves. Not a lot less. But the marketing stuff that the gentleman had put together that was our customer clearly showed that you would not be saving money by buying poor quality food and going to the store. So you were out the time, the money, and you got shit food. This is a form of decentralization, and this will only continue. The best form of decentralization is backyard production, though. And starting to build communities of backyard producers, and that will continue to expand. There's there's few niches in the world today that are as hot as homesteading. So this is just happening, and this is one of the most difficult things for them to continue to control. It's one of the most difficult because it's so simplistic to put up a hutch and start keeping a group of rabbits and put in some fodder trees and some clover and have free food for your rabbits and then have rabbit pellets to grow more food. And it's very difficult to say, Jack, you don't have rabbits, but your neighbor does, and you have ducks, and your neighbor doesn't, and prevent us from doing barter across the fence. Because barter is a weak, weak-ass thing as a broad spectrum. It's a very powerful thing, especially if it's intentionally orchestrated and designed. And what I mean by that is if we start building these resilient communities, especially outside of the, the zones of heavy control, which are your cities and your suburbs that orbit those cities. Those are the highest level of control. Moving just a little bit outside drops the control mechanism, even things that you're not supposed to do. Enforce it, bitch. Go ahead. Go, you're going to send a SWAT team here because I gave some dude some duck eggs? Who even told you that? Right. But if we start designing these communities and we say from the beginning, people who like raising rabbits, raise your hand. And that could be digitally. It doesn't have to be in person, but in person would be powerful. Okay, everybody that that, that likes eating rabbits, raise your hand. Okay, all these people want rabbits. All the people that like rabbits but don't have the time or desire to raise them yourself, raise your hand. And a bunch of the same hands will go back up. Okay, all the people here that are 
open to raising rabbits. Raise your hand. What do you want from these people? Do you want money? Do you want duck eggs? Do you want vegetables? Do you want to plant food for your rabbits in their backyard? Who here is good at making compost, right? We, this is such an easy thing to decentralize. If you've got a, a neighborhood with, let's say, 50 houses, 50 single occupancy houses in it, that was intentionally designed to do this, that neighborhood could easily produce more than half of its food. And more than half is a lot of disruption to the existing system. This is, again, this is the easiest one out of all of them today. This and the educational one. Those are the two that are the easiest to do. Let's move on to communications. We are going to have mesh networks, and we're already building them out. And things like Start9 and Umbral will continue to expand the, the capability of doing this. Well, we'll have our own private internets, and you ain't censoring it, and you're going to be able to get into these mesh networks by invitation only, 100%. Um, we're going to have socialized, uh, decentralized uh, social media platforms and protocols like Noster. Can Apple kick a, a Noster client out of the app store? They absolutely can, and they absolutely will get away with it. They absolutely will get away with it. But it doesn't matter because we are eventually going to have totally independent browser-based mobile devices that will be able to use a combination of attaching to centralized networks when they have to, mesh networks, things like Starlink, and that does not make Elon my hero because he's certainly not. I think he's an asshole. But I don't care what enables communications. I care that we have communications enabled. We have peer-to-peer -peer messaging. And one of the beautiful things about peer-to-peer -peer messaging is it is totally legal, and it would take a momentous effort to change this to encrypt data. I don't know if you know this or not, but if I make a voice communication with you from, let's say, Texas to Florida, and it's a pure, it's not a, it's not a data-based communication like VOIP, but a true voice communication to you, direct voice comms, it is illegal to encrypt that. Under all their bullshit, Telecommunications Act, et cetera, they have made it illegal for you to encrypt voice. Not audio, voice. And I don't have time to get into a, a, what the actual difference is. But data, you can encrypt. So it is completely legal and, again, very difficult for them to change their own rules with this to, to, to remove the ability to encrypt data. Well, if I have a messaging application and we're communicating on it, that is data. If you don't understand the difference, just trust me, it's data. But when we start adding things in like Start9 Embassy Servers, and we can run our own messaging servers with end-to-end -end encryption, and the groups and people allowed into that one particular network are invite-only. I have to approve you. And if somebody were to find a way in, I can see that there's a new there's a new party in 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 the group, and I can ban them, get rid of them, stop them from being there. Now it's very like. If you don't understand how that's going to decentralize communications, I don't know what to tell you. And we're getting to a point now for a couple grand, you can set something up that literally will run a community that way. And again, invite only. And now we have the ability to communicate not being spied on. Okay. And, and this is a lot of how we function in a gray market society. A lot of the things that we'll be doing won't necessarily be illegal or the thing won't be illegal, but some means by which it could be construed as illegal. But it also could be, since we don't like it, we'll go find something else 
We'll go find something else to crack down on. So the the more complex we can make them, uh, trying to figure out what we're saying and doing with each other, the better. The better, right? So it's not that they can't. And what you have to understand is, well, people say, but if you have this and they can do this and blah, blah, blah. This is when you individually target. If you are individually targeted, you have a problem. It was Himmler or, or I don't know, one of the people in, in Nazi Germany that said, show me the man and I'll show you the crime. There's a book about present day called Three Felonies a Day. And the average person probably commits three federal felonies. You got a different problem. The whole point is to not be targeted. To do things in such a way that you, you blend in to camouflage your actions. And comms are a huge part of that. So I think this is really important. This isn't about being able to communicate you know, some, some, you know, evil Dr. Evil, ha ha, $1 billion plan. This is about being able to go on with your life and live as a free being and communicate with the people you want to communicate with, with nobody else being involved. This is an inherent right to privacy that any free society would enshrine and protect. And that's why our government claims to, and at the same time doesn't. Moving on, media. Uh, decentralized video platforms are huge. I mean, you're watching me on YouTube right now, but you could be watching me on Rumble, but you could also be watching me on Odyssey. And, you know, I'll, I'll use any platform that basically will work. We have platforms like DTube, et cetera. We have platforms for video right now where not only will nobody take it down, but nobody can take it down. And that will only continue to grow. And you think that this is just about people doing what I'm doing, like basically podcasting, talk shows, et cetera. That's one piece. And we'll get to that in a bit. With podcasting. But think about the fact that people can produce entertaining content. People can produce educational content, documentary style content. Like literally anybody today can go into the video production business and whatever they want to say cannot be silenced. It cannot be shut down. This is a massive disruption to the media. Like the Internet is a massive disruption to the media. Sites like Substack are a massive disruption to the media. Freaking Fox News right now is losing their mind because Tucker Carlson is putting out 10 to 15 minute videos on Twitter that are blowing away their ratings. And like it's not even close how blown away they're getting. And they're sending him a cease and desist. It's not going to work. One way or another, the message will get out. It's unstoppable. So we can start, instead of bitching about Disney participating in the grooming of children, why don't we start producing content for children that's wholesome and valuable, that, that, that actually contributes to their, their growth and their education and entertains them? I mean, I remember watching cartoons as a kid. It was great. I sit around right now, and I watch, like, Bugs Bunny Roadrunner cartoons from 40 years ago with my granddaughter, and she loves it. But we could be producing new things, and we should be. And we will. Um, citizen journalism. This is, you know, we have shit going down where like some horrible things happening to somebody. A center intervening. We have all these morons with their phones out and recording it. And we look at that and we go, this is just terrible. It's a sick society. And I agree. But how much information have we gotten? How much of the truth have we gotten because of one person with a smartphone who was in the right place at the right time and thought, I need to document this? How many times have people thought they got away with shit, especially things like police officers and shit? And if it wasn't for somebody that they didn't know was there, they would have gotten away with it. And it's dozens and dozens and dozens of times. You look at things like with, you know, uh, James O'Keefe and his work, 
But there's so many that's just much smaller individuals. People showing up to places and doing things. This was also in the Celestine Prophecy series. I don't know if it was the first book. It might have been one of the follow-up books. He talked about like armies of citizen journalists. And at the time, he was talking about things like camcorders. And I was like, that'll never work. So I go out with my camcorder, right? And I record something on either a little or a big tape. Well, I have it. Yay. Now, how do I get it seen? How, how do I distribute it? I go to the media and I beg them. I say, I have information. And even if the reporter's like, woohoo, this is a great story. They go to their editor. Their editor's like, oh, we've been told to kill that. Shut up and go away. Still goes on today. We know that. But now one person with that smartphone can create a, a million copies of that data if they want to. And there's no way for anybody to stop it from being disseminated. And so that was another example of Redfield, the author, getting the thing right, but the means by which it would occur wrong. And I think that when you're writing a fiction book, especially, you just have to roll with what you have. But I think futurists would do well to kind of point out this is what's going to happen. But I'm not exactly sure the mechanism. And I hope that's clear today. That's what I'm trying to do. Like some of the things that will make massive gains for our side in this in the next year don't even exist yet. Or the two pieces exist and no one's just kind of figured out how do we put these together yet? And that's coming. And that will continue to come because this is how humans work. We are problem solving computers. We might enjoy being incensed and add it, have an attitude about things. We might get lazy. You know, the reason a lot of us are lazy is part of what we're talking about today, the food system. There's so many people that are lazy because they're chemically imbalanced. And I don't mean the way that the drug companies say so they can give you a pill to alter your brain. I mean, they're chemically imbalanced biochemically in their bodies because they're eating garbage fucking food. But when people are optimal in their health, they want to do things. They want to teach. They want to learn and they want to solve problems. They want to innovate and they want to create. Why do you think they don't want you to eat healthy? Do you really think the way the government tells you to eat is healthy? If so, please, please do me a favor. Unplug all your beliefs about dietary requirements for humans for one week and deep dive into the ketogenic carnivorous world paleo primal all of it go like because i don't care which stage you're part of it's all a thousand times better go do a look at the actual research not their centralized bullshit out of their centralized system out of their centralized education system out of their centralized funding system you have to separate yourself from this to do research if you're researching their shit only you're not doing any research the, it, the system is set up even where it looks like it presents um, counter information to have you come to a predetermined conclusion. You have to extract yourself from that system to be able to actually have an informed opinion. It's designed that way. It's centralized. So use the decentralized educational tools we have, the decentralized media and communications tools we have, and re-educate yourself. And then if you decide they were right all along, that's fine. But I bet you won't. And if you change the biochemistry of your body, if you enhance the epigenetic nature of your body and your mind, you will start looking to solve problems. And many of us already have. And we are. And we are. That's why they don't like it. Free and independent people are difficult to govern.
And so we're going to decentralize all of it. Let's, let's talk real quick about podcasting. I shouldn't have to say much. You listen to podcasts. But what I'll say about this is let's imagine that I was so good looking and so talented and had such an amazing voice that I really was a good fit for modern television. And let's say I was in a well-connected family, somebody that could make a phone call and get me four or five interviews on four or five different networks for four or five different talk shows. Let's say I had all that going for me. I was independently wealthy, right? But we don't have podcasting as we know it today. We have cable television as we knew it before podcasting, right? Lots of channels, lots of networks, the illusion of decentralization. And I go into and people are actually friendly to me. They're like, well, Mr. Spearco, you're part of the infamous Spearco family. We would love to have you in our network. We will tailor whatever you need to give you a one-hour talk show. I still couldn't do what I do. And I don't just mean upset the powers that be. I mean the format of my show. I couldn't have a five-day-a-week show, one day a week as an interview show with one person for over an hour. Couldn't happen. Even I confined it to an hour. went to their time spots, and I had room for commercials and all of it. So I had you know, 44 minutes of con- comment, uh, content per episode, 16 minutes. Per- I still couldn't do it. You know why? Because I can't have a show in their system that one day we're going to talk about 20 different mints you can grow and what to do with them. And the next day I'm going to have a guy on like I did yesterday talking about moving out into the country. And the next day I'm going to talk about something like this. And then the next day I'm going to have a group of experts answer your questions. And then the next Monday we're going to do a, a current event show. And you can't do it. It won't work in that system. It's impossible. And this is why we have all these podcasts now that aren't podcasts. When you take some talking head jackass off CNN, MSNBC, any of the networks, and I don't care what, I don't care if they're sports, I don't care if they're news, I don't give a shit. And all you do is take their same content and repackage it and throw it into an RSS feed. It is not a podcast. It doesn't do what podcasting is intended to do. And all it is is them trying to come into a world that they don't fit in. They're as awkward here as we are there. Now, there might be people that listen, but they're mainstream drones. And they're just, it's basically like, it's, it's almost like it's on their radio, but they're using a different means to get there. They're using our decentralized network to get there. But real podcasters do whatever they want, however they want, the way they want, with nobody telling them what to do except maybe their communities and listeners. And because of that, we have true decentralization of content and information and entertainment. Some of you today listen to me for the first time, and you're already gone because when I went off, you said, this isn't for me, and you left. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. You should have a choice. You shouldn't just have a choice. You should have hundreds, thousands of choices of how you get your information, of who you listen to, of how you spend your time. Podcasting has done that like nothing else in media. And the media will never understand it because they're incapable of understanding it. It's like going back in time to caveman days, to Neanderthal days, and handing a a Neanderthal a digital... um, Not a compass. What am I looking for? Where you measure things, the distance. It just went out of my head. Um, Caliper. Taking a digital caliper and handing it to a Cro-Magnon or Neanderthal. It doesn't matter that it works. It doesn't matter that a person in the modern age would look at it, and even if they'd never heard of it before, would be like, oh, uh, yeah, I see. It tells me how far my finger is or whatever. They wouldn't understand it. They wouldn't know what they're looking at. 
This is the media of today looking at politics. They don't know what they're looking at. They don't understand it. They don't know. They still don't know why Joe Rogan outperforms every major media news show on the planet. They can't figure it out. And they'll never figure it out because they, I know it seems stupid to you. I'm like, you're looking at you going, of course he does. He does three hour in-depth interviews with all this variety. He's a great storyteller. He's got credibility behind him. He's fought the system and won. You know, he, he he's in great shape for his age. He tells the truth. He does his best even when he's wrong. They don't understand any of that. I just said blah, 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 blah to those people. It's like speaking a different language. That's the complete opposite of everything they do. Short form, controlled content, staged advertisements, scripts for everybody. You know, I tried to work with a, a, a gal named Kim Commando, and I was kind of excited about it because she's really big in, in like online on radio and stuff like that. And the, it, the, the way we were going to work together is I was going to fit her into my expert counsel shows. And I did this a couple times. And she would, I would give her content and she would give me content to create. Like, you know, give me five apps that are good for people when they're traveling would be some, cause she was a tech person. And then maybe she'd say something about, you know, how to store food or something. And we'd record these, you know, five to 10 minute segments, just like I do with my expert counsel. And we would swap content and every week, She'd be on my show and I'd be on hers. We did it like three times. And I gave up and I pulled out of it. And the reason was I was waiting weeks to get a single segment back. Why? Because her team had to write her a script to read, which means you do not know what the fuck you're talking about. These were questions I could have done myself. I was softballing her questions. And she would send me one and I would sit down, turn the mic on, whip it out and send it back in seconds. Well, not seconds. If it was a seven-minute segment, segment, I had maybe ten minutes into producing it. Because I know what the fuck I'm talking about. These people don't know what they're talking about. They're actors. They're actors. Everything they do is scripted. There's no way they can fit into this ecosystem and actually be successful. Doesn't mean they won't have a lot of listeners, but they won't be successful. They just have people that are using that means to listen. They would be using some other means if they weren't there. We have something they'll never understand, even though they're allowed to play in the game with podcasting. Moving on, governance, smart contracts, uh, decentralized autonomous organizations. This has been the realm of shitcoinery, and most of the smart contracts have been investment contracts to exchange one shitcoin for another shitcoin or to create some sort of DeFi yield or something like that. It doesn't mean the concept is bad. Think about being able to form essentially something that works like a corporation or a company where everybody that participates is rewarded based on their performance. It is enforced by a set of rules. This thing did or did not occur and profits are distributed and it doesn't exist anywhere on paper. It doesn't go to a courthouse. There's no place where it's signed off on by a notary. There's no one to get in the way. The thing just is, it just exists. We already have that. We just haven't really figured out the best way to implement it yet. Smart contracts circumvent so much more than I think what people realize. Smart contracts are a great way to circumvent the court system, which is a big piece of how the government controls people. The family court system is a racket. It's a racket. More money from child support goes to provide retirement for the judges and employees of the court than do for the freaking kids. It's wide out in the open. You can go verify for that self if you don't believe me. The amount of money that the, 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 the supposed deadbeat dad pays, he's trying to survive, 
never gets to his kids. The, the family court system takes a cut of the action like the freaking godfather. The mafia is more honest than the court system. When you have a smart contract, you can create a smart contract for just about anything that could be gauged as being completed or not completed. Progress billing, what have you. So we don't have to go to court. We don't have to go to arbitration, even private arbitration. We basically create parameters of agreement going into an agreement, and then the, a computer executes payments in exchange of value. Again, we just haven't figured out how to fully utilize that. We will. Private membership clubs. Now, I think there's a lot of people out there selling how-to information about private membership clubs that if people follow it to the letter, someone's going to go to prison. Maybe a, a lot of someone's. It doesn't mean the concept itself doesn't work. We can create, again, we're creating a more of this closed barter and exchange network, but we can do it more as a club. The club sets its own guidelines. The club has its own rules. The club operates on private property. The state needs a reason and paperwork to enter private property, and this actually takes time. It doesn't mean you can get away with anything, but it does mean there's a lot of things that the state says you can't do, and you can set up in certain ways with PMAs. You could even send a letter to your, your police chief, the government, your senator. We're doing this, and they may not like it, but under their own rules, their own system, they can't do it. Think about the matrix again, right? One of the reasons, now it's all fiction, but it's a great analogy. It's a great allegory of the world. It's not why it was written in the first place. But one of the reasons that the agents can be combated is the matrix itself has its own rules. And within the rules of the matrix, there are certain abilities and inabilities and, and limitations. And so they've done this. That's the matrix. That's the real matrix. They've created their own system of control, but some of those controls do apply to them. Or it becomes, it just becomes not worth the effort. Again, individually targeted entities and people will always have huge problems here. The key is to create so much movement, so many decentralized nodes of activity, that it just becomes a decision, you know, what we'll do is we'll run our smart cities. We'll run our smart cities, and I, I really believe that we're going to have a society of the controlled and what you would think of as free zones. And there'll be a lot more geography to the free zones, but a lot less population density. And that doesn't mean they'll willingly do it. They will capitulate across time because they will have to. They will have to. The problem is their system itself will begin to crumble and fail. It will begin to crumble and fail, and they will be we will be visible enough to see our lives are better. Again, this is a this is a multi-decade thing. This is not something that happens tomorrow. It's not something that happens next year. It's not something that happens in five years. Pieces and parts will continue to drop. And if you're doubtful when you hear me talk about this today, all I'm going to say is go back in time 20 years and look at all the gains we have, all the things we can do today, that if, you told, if somebody told you these things would happen, some guy that you don't know his name will create a monetary system that will become, you know, eventually a trillion dollar network asset that people will use for private money and the state won't be able to stop it. Somebody told you that 20 years ago, you would have told them they were smoking crack and to get away from you. Well, whether you accept it or not, what's what we have? Do we would have a way that somebody in, in Japan could send a nickel to somebody in Dallas in a fraction of a second for no real money. That wouldn't make any sense. You would be able to have an entire 
new branch of media that would be called podcasting before anybody ever heard the word pod as like an iPod. And it would allow a jackass like me to build a network of, of, of thousands and thousands of people and earn a living talking about this type of stuff. And you can keep going. That We would have platforms that would allow children to get top-notch educations in their home with the education tailored to their needs. You would be able to get for cheap a tutor on demand for a given subject for any kid anywhere in the world in minutes if you needed it. That we would have software that would translate languages accurately where people could communicate between China and the United States when neither one of them spoke the other person's language. All of this would sound ridiculous. So what happens in the next 20 years? We're a lot further ahead now than we were 20 years ago. We're building advances on top of that. Um, I think there's going to be literally geographically unenforceable zones. Now, I don't mean that there'll be like if you ever watched Man in the High Castle and you had like the Nazis control the eastern United States and then the Japanese took over the western United States. It's a really interesting sci-fi series if you if you want to watch it. But there was this like the continental divide to Colorado, like the free zone. and There was no government. I don't mean that. I mean, what I was saying earlier, there will be places where they just can't. They just can't put the time and the effort into it. They can't worry about Farmer Joe giving Farmer Tom some figs. And, and they will they will have to focus in and drill down into the places that they have the utmost control over because they do have limits. And literally every single thing in this episode is about decentralizing government. If you look at the primary needs that humans have and the primary wants that humans have, health, communication, food, right, if, edu- uh, media, all of these things are completely ra- – there's a giant federal department of government over each of these areas. And some of them have two, three, four departments that share jurisdiction over this one thing nationwide. And they all combine with cooperation between governments to be global. That's centralization, right? But when we start taking each piece back, each one of those is taking away government's ability to control a thing. And to me, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Maybe it's not to you. Then you're probably in the wrong place. Did I trigger somebody again? We'll see. Anyway, um, energy. Well, all the individual solar, wind, biomass generation, you know, making things like biochar, but then redirecting the heat output or maybe using the gas output from biochar to generate power. This is all decentralized. All this shit about saving polar bears and everything, this is all about control. This is all about control. You don't have the richest people in the world all shrieking that you need to be worried about how many times you drive your car a week because the polar bears are going to die and the oceans are going to boil and we're all going to drown. And where do they all fucking live, folks? Where's all their expensive-ass houses? On the coast. On the coast. If you believe the oceans in the next 10 years are going to rise up and drown Florida, you don't own real estate on the beach in fucking Miami. You're a liar. They're all liars. Doesn't mean there's no environmental problems. On the contrary, there's way more environmental problems than they ever want to talk about. They talk about bending the ones that they can use as leverage for control and force and power against you. But the actual solution is not a giant solar mirror farm in the middle of the desert where 80% of the generated power is lost in transmission 
And I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Anybody talking about alternative energy, solar, wind, etc., that can't define impedance and attenuation without Google needs to shut the fuck up and not be taken seriously. You have no idea. These people have no idea what they're talking about. They have no idea what it takes to move power once it's generated, the limitations on that power, or the cost of building that infrastructure. But when somebody puts the power generation in their backyard on their house, that's decentralized, especially if it's not grid-tied or not grid-dependent. Solar, battery backup, grid-tied, but has a switch to turn off the connection to the grid, that's decentralized. That's control. That's power, and that matters. Alternative housing that reduces the energy needs. Have you noticed that the hardest thing to do is to build a house that needs almost no energy? Mike Reynolds, who's the guy that really, you know, brought out the Earthship concept, lost his architectural license. They didn't like what he was doing. I mean, that's all it came down to. There's an actual recording with somebody at an actual, like, courthouse or something, basically telling him, well, maybe the people that want to sell energy and deal with waste don't want you doing that. You can see why they wouldn't want you doing that, right? I watched a documentary. Listen to it myself. Can't remember what it was called. It was years ago. They don't want that. So if you really want to reduce carbon footprints, you really want to reduce energy use, you look at one of the main things that uses the most energy is buildings, commercial and residential both. And the first place you would start is not let's put solar powers on all the roofs. Let's make the dwelling need less energy. And not telling people, well, you're going to sweat your ass off every night with sweat neck, neck sweat, right, while you sleep, while the rich fat cats sit there with, they might as well have, like, back in Egypt with somebody fanning their ass and feeding them grapes and flying around in private jets. Because that's all nonsense. You would start with let's make the, the, the dwelling need as little as possible, not just so humans can survive, but humans can be comfortable and happy in it. But no, all the building regulations are set up, stick and brick, subdivisions. Why? Because it's not about saving the planet. It's not even about reducing energy use. It's about control of the population. So we need to move to places where we can build whatever the hell we want within reason anyway, have as much flexibility as possible. And sometimes we just need to build shit and not tell them. I guarantee you in most places, yeah, if you're going to self-build, hire subs that you bring in, you have 40 acres of land, you're going to put a couple of buildings in the center of it, it's surrounded by trees, you're probably not going to hear from anybody. You're probably not going to hear from anybody. Not that they wouldn't, but it is a complaint-driven system, and we need to start applying pressure to the places, and we need to start slipping behind the enemy and chokeholding the enemy in places where we have the opportunity. Instead, we let them do that to us, and then we sit around and bitch. We use this as an excuse for inaction, right? Um, community microgrids, that's something that already exists, and that's going to become more and more the case. We're actually building microgrids at the community level that tie into the main grid, but only draw from that main grid when they need it. And then we're coupling that with things like community wind farms. There's places in Texas right now, your electric company is literally a co-op that you're a member of. And the co-op generates as much power as it can, distributes as much power as it can, and then and only then buys the, the surplus power they need from the primary grid. 
That's a hybrid design. It's not fully decentralized. But what it is, is if they're ever cut off, they still have something. And again, if we couple that with housing, that leaves less energy demand in the first place. We can radically transform the world, and we will. And when I say we, I mean all of us, and I mean generations of us. I'm always coming from a standpoint of seventh generational thinking. I know that society has done everything that it can to kill that concept and make you think, me, 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 now, 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 what can I get? Every single person that's in corporate sales today is judged by the month, the quarter, and at best the annuum. But we judge the annuum with the month. If you were ever in corporate sales, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You can have a record-breaking month. You can have a 3x your quota month in June, and if your sales suck in July, they're talking about firing you even though you're going to make your annual quota. Because what are you doing? What do you need more? You need, what have you done for me lately? We are short time preference society in a, in a, in a global world that works on long time preference only. There is no short time preference in nature as a larger system. We're talking about a planet that no matter what you believe is billions of years old. You don't deal in billions of years with short time preference. You don't. We're in a, we're a, a, a cosmic community. We're a piece of life floating in a vast cosmos. We have no idea if we're the only life or we're the most advanced life. We just don't know. I have my beliefs on that, but I will admit I do not know. And anybody that says they do, they're batshit crazy because you can't know. You can't know an unknown. Maybe someday we will. But we have got to come at this from a long time preference. And each little thing we do, we have to start looking at ourselves. You know, I, I did a lot in the beginning of this show and building this community, talking about the story of the ant and the grasshopper. And telling the, the fable of the ant and the grasshopper, where the ant works his ass off, the grasshopper parties, the winter comes, and the grasshopper freezes to death and dies because he didn't do any work. It's just an allegory. It's just a story, right? It's a metaphor. Ants eat grasshoppers. I watched them eat the shit out of a grasshopper in my backyard the other day. And he was trying to get away, and they were just eating his ass. So it's not a real, but it does explain that. But in some ways, we need to start acting. And this is a weird thing, because ants are a collective insect it's like the board it's what they want but in some ways we need to start acting like ants and not just with storing food and what have you and being prepared i mean differently so you know this one little ant is born she's a worker ant she hatches out of her egg they feed her to make sure she grows up and to be one of us and then her, her assignment is to dig tunnels and expand the colony And so she goes and she goes way down the end of this tunnel and she picks up one little tiny grain of dirt and she climbs up this huge long tunnel. And some of them are huge to us, but to an ant, like it's like it's like it went a mile and it drops this one grain on top of the uh, mound and it turns around and it goes right back and does it again. It does this all day long. And that ant in a week won't fill up a teaspoon. But this mound is massive because there's millions and millions of ants, each chipping away at a little tiny piece. If you go back and look at ancient societies and some of their amazing construction projects, like Rome's aqueducts, and you think about how would you build this? You don't have dynamite. You don't have excavators. You don't have trucks. You don't have cars. You don't have petroleum. And they built it. They built it with human labor. 
any one person's contribution seemed inconsequential. If a guy died working, they just threw his ass in a hole and replaced him. But the collective action across time moved water hundreds of miles. And these systems worked for centuries because each individual contribution did matter. When it comes to chiseling away this control that they have, you bet your ass a rabbit hutch matters. What you're doing matters been one of my 12 tenets since we started. What you do matters. And the greatest system of control they've enacted is to disempower you so that you don't fucking believe it when I say it. If you had a twinge of doubt when I said that what you do matters, I want you to go look in the mirror and tell yourself it does until you fucking believe it. Because only when you believe it will you truly start to do the things that are necessary. You do not have to liberate society 1% to matter. You just have to liberate yourself 1% to matter. Because when you give yourself 1% more liberty than you fucking have right now, you will say, damn, that feels good. This is the shit. This is life. This is doing something with my dash. I like that. I want one more percent. And you double it. And it's two. And then you say, Screw that. That's not enough. I want four. So you double it again. And then it's eight. And then it's 16. And then it's 32. And if you carve out freedom in your life, it matters to you. And it matters to the people that you work with. And it matters to the people that you love. And it matters to the people that you take care of. And it matters to the people you provide for. The greatest deception is to convince you that it doesn't matter. Trust me, it matters. If it didn't matter, they wouldn't get upset about it. If it didn't matter what I say, they wouldn't take my videos down. If I was meaningless to the system and I went out and said something that particularly on this week, the media doesn't want said, some asshole at YouTube wouldn't go, we've reviewed your video and determined that it does violate our terms, even though they're not going to tell you what term it violated. I can tell you what you said, how you said it, when you said it, what it meant. We just say it did, and it is. You're afraid. You're afraid of a redneck duck farmer, you pussies. These people are afraid of me. Do not be afraid of them. They're afraid of you. They're terrified of you. They're terrified of things like I'm saying today. Who knows? This video, I didn't violate anything, and it still might get taken down. I'll probably turn the ads off because of how many times I use the F word in it, but they'll probably still take it. They'll find a reason. They might even find a reason two years from now when nobody's watching it anymore because they're terrified. This is the most terrifying thing in the world to someone who loves centralized authority and control. To a high-level sociopath, this is horrifying. Your chicken laying eggs that are not full of poison is, I know it sounds ridiculous, but then why would they attack it? Both with disinformation and directly. We've had people, you know, have their front yard gardens burned or whatever, pulled out or ripped out. By, you know, some of it's just, Blue hairs, busybody Karens, whatever. But in general, there's an overall push against everything we want to do. Why would they do that? Right? Why would they do, why would we have a society where people are dying every day of illness and disease and they're worried that you're eating too much meat because you'll get sick? Like they really give a shit about your health. Well, they do give a shit about your health. They don't want you to be too healthy. Healthy people are dangerous. Healthy people make independent decisions. Healthy people are not dependent on a drug system that makes trillions of dollars a year. What do you think the value 
of the diabetic industry is in America today. It's something like, I think it's like 48 billion was the number, right? That's how much money they make on diabetes annually. 48 billion. When the orange man wanted $4 billion to build a wall, right? And it's not pro or anti-wall. It's just a case. $4 billion to build a wall. Oh, my God. Can't afford it. $48 billion they make on diabetes. Do you think they have any interest in reducing the number of people with diabetes when they make, you know, $40, $50 billion off of it and just keep going? Look at everything. What do you think the value of the heart transplant industry is? What do you think a surgeon, and it's amazing that they can do it. Don't get me wrong. And, and there's probably, no, no matter how well we live, there would still be cases where it's necessary. But we wouldn't have, you know, like UNOS and this entire system to distribute the few hearts that we have to all these people. If we, and we wouldn't have wings of hospitals built off the money that's sucked out of that system. What do you think the value of the kidney industry is? The kidney transplant industries. And again, I'm grateful that there are surgeons so skilled that they can take a kidney out of a dead person or one kidney out of a living person, put it into another person and save their life. I'm so grateful for that. But how much of that goes back to the diabetes industry? What percent? I'd like to know. I don't actually have a number that I, that I know, but I would like to know what percentage of kidney transplants. Somebody find this if you can before we finish up today. What percentage of kidney transplants in modern society is due to complications due to type 2 diabetes? I'd love to know what that number is. And then if you could do, all you'd have to do then is what is the average cost of a kidney transplant and multiply it by that percentage number of the total, and you would know the value of that piece of industry. And whatever it is, it's billions. I don't have a number, but it's billions. People will kill you for $5. What do you think these sociopaths will do for a billion dollars? And they'll do it under the auspice of protecting you. And if you think I'm, this is hyperbole and I'm just going off, you're wrong. If you, if you haven't been around a while, not that long ago, I covered that there's a company. I don't even remember what they're called, but they make all their money from providing dialysis to people with diabetes and failing kidneys. And they supposedly care about you, and they work with the American Diabetes Association, which is a labor union for doctors that are supposed to care about you and your kidneys, right, to come up with recipes for diabetics that, say, like, add a, a cup of sugar to it. Like, these recipes that they're marketing to diabetics are toxic to diabetics. Even if you think it's okay, if you have diabetes, this is the last shit you want to eat. And a company that only makes money when you need dialysis is telling you what to eat because they care and they don't want you to need dialysis. Are you kidding me? How stupid is this society? This is what centralized education and media and government and centralized comms and centralized energy gets you. A population of stupid, sick, but not quite dying sheep. Some will die every year. You ask any farmer, has a herd. Cattle, sheep, whatever. Do you lose some animals every year? Yeah. Are you happy about it? Not so much. Is there a number that you just go, that's par for the course, and you don't really worry about it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. Just like farming chickens for me, right? You're going to have a mortality rate. And if it's below a certain number, it's just that's the, that's how it works. This system does well enough to be profitable, and this is the consequence when it doesn't work. They view you the same way. 
they don't give a shit when you die. They don't give a shit when you blow your kidneys up or your liver up. They don't care when you get coronary heart disease. They sell you shit. And then they sell you a drug and they sell you a drug that counteracts the side effect of the first drug. And then they send you another drug and another drug. And their goal is to have every single person by the time they're an adult on four medications. This is actually a stated goal of some of these companies and these entities. Everybody's sick in some way. And if they're not, we'll make sure that they are. And boy, do they want you on those psychotropic drugs to you know, fix your mental illness. You don't have a mental illness. You have an independent thought. That's their problem. So get involved. If you think all of this is pie in the sky, pick the piece you think isn't. Pick the place that you can pick up your one little grain of sand like that ant and carry it out and drop it. And then realize you live a lot longer than an ant. And each little piece is building on top of the next so that the next one becomes more consequential to the whole. Don't ever believe that you can't have freedom. If you believe you can't have freedom, you're right. You're right. And that's sad. And it doesn't have to be. With that, I hope you enjoyed today's show. I want to give you something today to help you on your dietary journey. If you um, you want to try this uh, this whole keto carnivore thing, but you're like, man, there's some things I just can't give up. I discovered something, and I talked about the base recipe in this in a show earlier this week or last week. I don't remember what, but I learned about it from a YouTuber named Courtney Luna. And it's basically, did you know you can make basically flatbreads, breads, tortillas out of pork rinds? That's totally legit on the carnivore keto lifestyle. Um, And the quality of your pork rinds are as high as the quality of the pork rinds you buy. But with pork rinds and egg and butter, you can make a, re- a reasonable like bread-like substitute. It doesn't taste like bread. It tastes like, well, pretty neutral pork rinds, but it works really good. If you're watching the video right now, tell me you don't want to smash those tacos. Now, I made those with a waffle cone maker made by Proctor Silex, and that's our actual item of the day today. And I put a video um, in, in the write-up for you where you can see exactly how to do this. And uh, I give the recipe, the procedure, I give 100% of all of it. And uh, I'm going to try to get this on hey guys, the volume. Let's get the volume down, and you can kind of see it while I'm talking here. And I am just, I'm enamored with these. And I think there's other stuff. There's also some ways to make tortilla-like, flatbread-like things uh, out of chicken, for instance, and, and other things that we can do it with that keep that low-carb lifestyle. Look at the the uh, the tortilla you get. They're flexible. They don't crack. They don't break. They're a little bit thicker than a flour tortilla. I'd say they're about 1.5 the thickness of a typical flour tortilla. Zero carbs. Carnivores, you can eat them too. And this waffle maker, it's actually a waffle cone maker. It's thinner than a regular waffle maker. It just works absolutely fantastic. You can find out more about it in the audio notes when this goes uh, up as an audio. About 30 minutes from right now is when that will happen on the website. And, uh, man, I encourage you guys to try this. I encourage you to try anything that improves your health. And I know you've been told that uh, pork rinds are bad for you, that fat's bad for you, that animal products are bad for you. Think of the people telling you that. Who are these people? Where did they get their education? What system do they serve? The answer is, you know what, the centralized system. 
start taking charge of your health. This is one great way to do it. And if you like junk food, it probably makes really great waffle cones, too. My wife already said, in spite of the fact that I'm opposed to it, she will make some waffle cones and ice cream for the kids at some point. But it is just a great product. And I think it will make um, a really good uh, piece of crust, too. So there's a lot of flatbread. I think you cut it up and make chips out of it. Really, really awesome. And uh, K-Bonk says they make pork panko, too. That's what I use in the video. Uh, so I have a product called Porking Good uh, Breadcrumbs, and uh, it's just basically ground-up uh, pork rinds. You know, I see a lot of people online, they make their own, they buy a bag, they throw it in a food processor. It's faster, it's more convenient, and if you do the math, it costs less. And it's still pork rinds. So it just makes it, when things are easy, we tend to do them. This is not something I'm going to eat every day, but when I, like last night, we wanted to make tacos. I did ribeye chopped up ribeye tacos with my own seasoning. I had cucumber salsa from the garden, so mine wasn't full carnivore, but the tortillas were uh, guacamole, some fresh, really good, high-quality cheese. It was just fantastic. It was, and I will tell you, they're a lot more filling than a typical tortilla. I ate two last night. I don't think I'll do that again. From now on, when I do this, I'll either make two little ones, like street tacos, or just make one big one if I want extra meat put on the side because I was a little um, – a little over full last night when I actually gave like the last little piece of it to Charlie. Anyway, with that, I hope you enjoyed today's show. Definitely give that a shot. Remember, you can always help us out by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. If you like what you heard today and you want to support this show, become a member of the MSB. That's the member support brigade. Just go to survivalpodcast.com. Click on members to learn more. You'll get so many discounts on so many things that you're going to buy anyway. Your membership will pay for itself with that. I'll be back tomorrow with an expert Q&A show. There'll be no live stream for an expert show. Uh, next live stream will be Monday. You can always find the next live stream coming or the last one that happened. If I haven't updated yet, you know where, tspclive.com. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. You don't have to be another face in the crowd. Oh,